You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Hello and welcome to this week's Domecast. I'm Colin Campbell from the News and Observer. And we are here with the uh, special post uh, special session edition. Lots of specialness in that uh, that lead in there. Uh, obviously, we had the uh, surprise special session pop up on Wednesday. Uh, the uh, Speaker of the House and the President of the Senate, who is Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest, uh, rallied together a three-fifths majority of both chambers. And uh, despite the governor not joining in the call, uh, called for a special session to revoke the Charlotte non-discrimination ordinance that uh, has a controversial provision dealing with uh, bathroom use by people who are transgender. Uh, So that consumed uh, much of the news cycle this week. We're still hearing the fallout from it uh, here on Friday morning as we record this. So lots and lots uh, to talk about in reference uh, to that. Obviously the biggest story of the week and uh, probably of a historic uh, special session. It's the first time since the early 1980s that the legislature has come back to town without a proclamation from the governor. Um, and it's also, I think, probably the first time maybe in history, at least in the last 20 some years that we've uh, uh, had the legislature back in town to specifically address uh, the actions of one uh, local government body and, and to revoke that. Uh, and, and perhaps the first special session on, on bathrooms specifically, unless that was something that happened uh, back in the 1960s, which it, it may have. Um, anyway, so to start off before we uh, introduce the panel and, and get our conversation going here, I wanted to hear from uh, some of the folks who have uh, particularly passionate views uh, about this whole bathroom issue, uh, who spoke at one of the uh, public hearings that the legislature held prior to approving uh, House Bill 2 earlier this week. Uh, we're going to start off by hearing a clip from Angela Bridgman, who is a transgender woman, has transitioned from male to female, uh, talking about uh, her experiences uh, in, in dealing with bathrooms. Uh, we're going to follow that with uh, someone on the opposite side of this issue who uh, opposes the Charlotte Ordinance and was uh, supporting the bill that the legislature passed, a high school student named Chloe Jefferson from Greenville, uh, who is expressing her concerns about uh, possibly having to use uh, the bathroom and locker room facilities with uh, folks who are born in the opposite gender. So let's uh, hear from them right now. Now, I am post-operative. My birth certificate says female. My license says female. This is not going to affect me. But that's not what I'm here to talk about today. What I'm here to talk about today is in 1998, I was denied a college education because I am a transgender person. Five days after Matthew Shepard was killed in Wyoming, I was told by my then college, Sullivan College in Louisville, Kentucky, that I would only be allowed to use male restrooms. What would you all do? I did the only thing I could. I chose my safety. Five days after Matt Shepard is killed, I'm told that I have to put myself in a position where I'm probably going to be beat up or worse. I dropped out of college and I never went back. I was denied a college education just because I'm transgender. I don't mean to be insensitive to some people that maybe have suffered sexual assault and are fearful, but I have a right to be safe too. I have a right to be safe too, and I have a right to get a college education which was denied to me. <laughs> I have a right. And the more to the point, this is not going to affect me now because I am in every way legally female, but nobody else should have to go through what I did. Nobody should have to make the kind of choice I had to make. Thank you. When the Charlotte City Council passed their bathroom ordinance, I was immediately fearful. I was fearful because if Charlotte can do something like this, what city will be next? My own? Changing in front of my girl peers is already intimidating enough. 
The teen years are especially difficult with different body image perceptions being pushed on us through social media, magazines, and Hollywood. We start to believe there's a certain way to look and to not look. Now we add the possibility of males changing and showering alongside me. This is something that makes me, and I'm sure other girls, even more self-conscious. Girls like me should never be forced to undress or shower in the presence of boys. I would imagine being born a boy, but thinking you're a girl is very scary and confusing. But being a teenage girl is confusing too. What about my rights to privacy and wishes to not be exposed to young males changing and showering beside me? I think everyone has the freedom to believe in what they want, but they shouldn't change laws for a small number of students that punish and single out the rest of us. That wouldn't be fair. And that was uh, two folks who spoke at the public hearing at the legislature this week. Uh, first, we heard from transgender activist Angela Bridgman, and we followed that with a clip from Chloe Jefferson, a high school student from Greenville at a Christian Academy there. Uh, now turning to our panel to uh, sort through all the uh, the week's action and reaction uh, to this special session. Uh, Pat Gannon from The Insider is here, and uh, Will Doran from The News and Observer is joining me as well. Hey, guys, uh, busy week for us for sure. Yes, it was. Yes, it yeah. was. Um, so uh, I, I guess to start off, uh, you know, this, this bill, I know you guys have been covering it in detail. Anyone want to, uh, try to do the, the two minute explainer for anyone who's somehow been living under a rock this week and, uh, hasn't been, uh, paying attention to the news cycle? Well, sure. You know, essentially you had, uh, Charlotte city council passed an ordinance saying, uh, you know, that businesses there could not discriminate against folks based on, you know, sexual identity or preference or uh, you know, things like that. The uh, some of the state leaders uh, in the Republican Party and also you know a host of concerned people in Charlotte and around the state uh, were concerned by that rule and they decided that um, since the Charlotte's ordinance was set to go into effect April first, but the legislature was not going to come back until April twenty fifth, they needed to act in order to overturn that rule and make sure that. No other cities could do a similar thing, um, you know, before it actually went into effect. Yeah, so it's. Uh, I think some of us were surprised to see that the special session kind of come up so quickly. Um, you know, it was just Saturday, I guess, that I uh, had heard a rumor that the special session was getting ready to to be called, and I got House Speaker Tim Moore on the phone on Saturday afternoon, and he said, "Oh, yeah, we're thinking of doing it this week, but uh, we don't know yet." And then I guess the the news really broke on on Monday, um, and as a result, I think there were some people in the legislature who uh, didn't actually make it back in time. It was what about fifteen or twenty people in the House and a few others in the Senate that uh, didn't get back to Raleigh in time to to participate in the the special session. Um, so that was uh, one aspect of it, but uh, certainly uh, lots of, of other uh, sides of this. Um, I was surprised about sort of the political side of it, to the degree to which uh, folks who are, are running for re-election were um, sort of front and center in all this. They seemed to get the, the spotlight, and you know, I think you can make the case that this was almost a, a one-day uh, political infomercial, both for the, the Democrats and the Republicans. Yeah, uh, the, the, main, the main people involved uh, that, that faced probably tough elections this, this fall were Senator Buck Newton, um, who uh, pushed it very hard. They had a press conference a couple weeks uh, prior to uh, the special session where he, where he spoke out about the, the Charlotte ordinance, and he's obviously running for attorney general against uh, former Senator Josh Stein, who 
resigned on Monday, so and a lot of the Republicans are claiming that he resigned so he wouldn't have had to take a position on this. Yeah, bill. and to his credit, I want to talk to him yesterday. He did take a position against it, but I did ask him specifically: one, did he support the Charlotte bathroom ordinance? He told me he hadn't read it, uh, and two, would he have joined the walkout with the the Senate Democrats? And he said, well, he hadn't talked to them, so he couldn't really speak to that. But yeah, he's gotten a fair amount of criticism on that. Right. So, so Senator Newton was was out in front of this, uh, one of the main one of the main folks, and then there's. Uh, Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest, uh, who, who also took a, a leadership role in this, uh, in, in overturning the uh, the Charlotte ordinance. Um, there were a number, uh, interestingly, a number of General Assembly members who were running for Congress across the state, and and I'm pretty sure that everyone uh, who, who is, including Trisha Cotham. Yeah, she was the first out of the gate, I think, on the Democratic side speaking out against it. Rodney Moore, uh, Representative uh, Rodney Moore. Um, who else? Colin, help me out here. Yeah, uh, so there is, for- there's several Republicans. I'm, I'm trying to think if any of them actually spoke up. John Blust, who's running for Congress in the 13th District. Uh, John Hardister was running, but I think he announced this morning that he's not going to run for Congress. Um, but yeah, quite quite a few folks that are uh, running for Congress or just for um, in some sort of contested race. Dan Bishop from Charlotte, who is the sponsor of the bill, uh, he is trying to move up into Bob Rucho's Senate seat. So he's got a contested race with a Democrat in the fall. I don't know how close that race is going to be. I think that's probably a pretty conservative district, but uh, certainly doesn't hurt his cause to, to be out in front of this thing. It was funny how uh, Representative Rodney Moore referred to, or he was asking a question to uh, Representative Bishop and he called him Senator Bishop and then Senator and then Representative Bishop responded and called him Congress called Rodney Moore congressman so they were <laughs> yeah, little, so they all knew what this was about. Joking. yeah <laughs> yeah so that I mean that kind of shows you right there that that politics was was in everybody's minds as this was going on this week yeah well and obviously it has uh, definitely seeped into the governor's race as well with um, you know both Pat McCrory and Roy Cooper you know wading into it um, you know ads and press releases on both sides criticizing one another a lot of back and forth there um and you know i i'd seen some people saying that you know maybe one of the reasons for this special session was also to kind of you know put some pressure on the you know especially on roy cooper uh, a lot of republicans you know don't like that he's been relatively silent on this issue yeah so yeah he for the longest time i think uh the folks at the charlotte observer were trying to get him right after the charlotte ordinance passed to say did he support it or not because obviously mccrory uh, i think even before it passed uh, sent an email to the charlotte city council saying look guys if you do this the state's going to step in and, and put a stop to it and of course they did uh but roy cooper really didn't say much uh until actually i think the day of the special session he put out a uh statement in video form where he uh, basically called the the bill a form of legalized discrimination. But he didn't go into detail about uh, the whole Charlotte bathroom thing. And even when I pressed his campaign manager on it yesterday, uh, I couldn't get a sense for for where he stands on that. So I I think it's worth noting that uh, particularly Democrats who have to run statewide, I think the ones who are running in, you know, a congressional district like Trisha Cotham and Rodney Moore, that's predominantly Charlotte, where there is a uh, a good deal of support for this ordinance. Uh, folks who are running statewide and, and are Democrats are trying to walk this line because I think there's a sense that um, this whole bathroom issue does have traction with uh, moderates and independents, that people really are worried about the idea of someone who is biologically of the opposite gender being in a uh, gender 
based restroom or, or changing facility. Um, so a lot of the Democrats don't want to take a position on that, and they haven't. Josh Stein has not. Um, Ray Cooper has not. Uh, surprised that Linda Coleman, the lieutenant governor candidate, actually did come out in favor of the, the Charlotte bathroom thing yesterday. But that was the only Democrat I talked to who's running statewide and, and was willing to address that topic head on, um, because I think it is a difficulty. But in a sense, perhaps the Democratic um, Party view of this may end up being winning the national narrative uh, because they're wanting to put the focus on something that's a little more broad-based, the idea that uh, this is a, the way they've formatted this law, it's constituting, allowing for discrimination against not just transgender people, but gays and lesbians in general, and, and perhaps others in, in the form of some of these workplace uh, protection issues that are also raised in this bill. And if you look at a lot of the national news headlines on this, it's, it's being described as a you know striking down of LGBT protections. And that's the narrative the Democrats want to see, because they think they can really make some traction on that and, and make the governor and the legislature look bad. And, and certainly they've gotten all the backlash from, from businesses over the last 24 hours or so. Um, but if, it, if the Republican narrative of we're protecting women in restrooms from men also being in the restroom, then that's that's a narrative that they can win with, assuming that's what people are remembering come November. And I, th- I think they pointed to, and correct me if I'm wrong, but one it, one instance, I think it was in Seattle, where a man uh, showed up who, who was just a normal a normal guy, not transgender, uh, who, who, and I guess Seattle has a similar ordinance, and showed up in a, in a locker room where... Um, uh, a bunch of teenage girls were changing for swim practice or something and um, disrobed, I think, as somebody on the floor. Uh, yeah, so it. Phil Berger told this story and I actually went back and looked. Uh, the, the A news story he's basing it on oh, it was tweeted out by his, his chief of staff, Jim Blaine, earlier in the day. Um, and when I read it, it, it seemed to suggest that this guy comes in, he's not visibly transgender, he's apparently not, not in any traditional sense actually transgender, comes into a women's locker room at a, a public facility, uh, takes off his shirt, and, you know, I think about all the women who are in the vicinity just flee uh, and, and, you know, call for the police. The police, I guess, never end up charging the guy because he's saying, uh, I'm protected from doing this because you all have this ordinance in Seattle. Uh, and then he came back another time when there was a, a swim team in there. It was unclear to me whether he'd actually walked in there while people were changing, although obviously it's entirely possible that if you walk in a women's locker room, you were going to see someone in some state of undress or, or another, which is obviously very troubling. Um, but uh, that seems to be the main example, uh, because the p- folks who are, are supporting uh, the Charlotte ordinance are saying, look, this is in many, many other cities, and there haven't been instances of sexual assault or any of the, you know, scary things that you say this is going to, you know, open us up to. Right. I, I mean, I think, and I'll switch gears a, t- a tiny bit here if you don't mind, but I think more than anything, and I'm going to be writing a column about this, but I think this this whole, uh, you know, Wednesday special session just shows the power that that the Republicans in the General Assembly hold in this state. I mean, with super majorities um, in both chambers, they were able to get the required number of of you know signatures for to call a special session even though the governor thought you know it could wait until um i think that's what the governor said that it could wait until you know the actual short session which starts uh uh, in late april um they they could come up here on wednesday release a bill to the public you know in the morning there were some drafts floating around i think some legislators might have seen drafts beforehand but um the actual bill didn't show up until 10 a.m. was 10, when it was post officially filed. 10 a.m. They they held a committee meeting a short time later where they gave 
um, you know, both sides an opportunity to to uh, speak in, in public comment, period. But um, Speaker Tim Moore had told us a day earlier that they weren't going to probably they were going to vote down or table any substantive amendments that the the language they had was the language was going to pass so i think that pretty much made the public hearing you know moot yeah um, i mean the only real amendment that got changed was the uh the trisha cotham amendment that uh allowed a parent of someone who's seven years old or younger uh, to go in the bathroom of the opposite sex if they're accompanied by a parent or, or guardian or something. And even that, I think, got watered down from her original proposal. Because if you looked at the amendment she filed, it's written out to say 12 and under, and I'm gathering in order to get bipartisan support. She crosses that out and then writes in, in 7 and under is the, the target there, which is, I think, prompted some concerns among special needs parents and, and others who have older kids but who need help using the bathroom and, and therefore have to go in an opposite gender restroom. But anyway, like, like you're saying, the, the power of the legislature just is, uh, we could go from not seeing a bill to a bill being law in 12 hours. Yep. Can you imagine that happening in Washington, D.C.? <laughs> never would happen, never would happen if the if Democrats controlled one of the chambers or if there was a Democratic governor, um, because there they, they would have to be, you know, I, I, I wouldn't doubt that something related to the, to the Char, Charlotte ordinance, you know, could have possibly passed ultimately. Um, so, but the, the other language in here, the, the, the stuff that wasn't talked about up front uh, that has to do with all cities not being able to um, pass non-discrimination ordinances, that probably wouldn't have made it anywhere uh, if there was a, you know, a Democrats in, in control of one chamber or the other or the governor's mansion. Um, so they pretty much can do whatever they want um, at any time. I mean, I, I think this showed that, that if, they're, if they feel strongly about enough about something, they can pass a bill to, to stop it or start it or, or um, you know, basically whatever they want. And yeah. it doesn't matter who they alienate, who they hurt in the process. Most Republicans are in, are in safe districts. Most Republican incumbents are, are protected by the districts that they serve in, so they can alienate whoever they want. Um, uh, or not whoever they want, but they can alienate certain people. Yeah. I mean, the only people who can really uh, feel the, the negative impacts of this are people running statewide, like Pat McCrory or, or Dan Forrest. But, um, you know, you're not there. No one's going to unseat Phil Berger and Tim Moore this year because they don't even have competition in their districts. I read a post on Facebook from an old old friend of mine who's gay in in Wilmington and has had a partner for a long time. And he said that they they went to bed on Wednesday night crying in each other's arms um, over this. And those are the kind of things that, that this, that this general assembly can, can, can do. Um, They can alienate people, they can hurt people and they don't have to worry about it. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's interesting to me to compare how this process went through legislatively to the religious freedom restoration act that was proposed uh, during last year's session, uh, commonly referred to as RIFRA. It was very similar to the Indiana law that uh, provoked a lot of uh, uh, controversy up there and ultimately, I guess, got uh, defeated or overturned or something. But here in in North Carolina, it was filed. it, It started to go through the process. And then you saw this backlash from the business community. And over the course of several weeks, that backlash mounted, and eventually House Speaker Tim Moore decided that they weren't going to take up the bill, they weren't going to hold a vote on it, and they were going to just let it die for the session. Um, 
and this instance, I think we're seeing very, very similar backlash from the business community. You've had groups like Apple, uh, Microsoft, Wells Fargo, uh, even the NCAA and the NBA have uh, sort of hinted that they might be taking away sporting events and, and sort of pulling business out of North Carolina. So that's the sort of backlash that killed that bill last year. Uh, but in this case, they went th- ran the bill through so quickly and with so little warning, there was no organized opposition on that level to it until after it was law. This this all came up uh, Thursday um, as, as backlash. None of it really during the day uh, Wednesday when when there was still some chance of, of defeating the thing. Yeah, it was funny. I, also on Facebook and other social media, you saw a whole a lot of people uh, saying, "Tell the governor not to, you know, to to veto House Bill Two, but he had already signed it by the time." You know, all these people were posting, thinking it, there was still a chance that the governor could veto it, but he had already signed it by, what was it, 8, uh, 10 p.m. or and something. And that's, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, that's fairly quickly for him to sign a bill. I mean, there's some bills for the last legislative session that sat on his desk for weeks before he, he took any sort of action. And this one, I guess he could argue he needed to do it by April 1st, but there's still another week before April 1st arrives and yeah, that ordinance I mean, takes effect. I think the, you know, most people would think he just did it to try to, to try to just get it over with and not and not you know ha- have to take all the criticism and and um, pressure uh, yeah. over the next few days. Clearly, uh, and Will, were you there last night uh, at the protests? Uh, pro- I, I was not. Um, I had covered some some rallies, one rally beforehand, um, and it's interesting that you bring that up because it it was fairly stark the difference between the rally urging you know, the legislature not to hold a special session was attended by 11 or 12 people, um, you know, on the steps of the Capitol. And it was just a couple of days beforehand. And, you know, maybe people thought that, oh, you know, this won't actually happen. So there wasn't that much interest, you know. A dozen there weren't that many there. people there. I, I thought there'd be more people at the legislative building on Wednesday than there were. Yeah. Um, yeah. There wasn't really a protest there on Wednesday either. It all happened just so fast. But then, uh, yeah, last night um, here in Raleigh, there were I don't know the exact number, yeah, but it was like a couple hundred, hundred people in front of the governor's mansion, least, yeah, and that was taking place. That was organized by Black Lives Matter. That's the one where people got arrested because uh, they had chained themselves together in the middle of Blunt Street, right outside of uh, Governor McCrory's house. Um, yeah, and there was a separate one. And yeah, and then Equality NC Human Rights Campaign and some of the more, I guess, established LGBT groups had a rally at the same time at the uh, Unitarian Church over on Wade Avenue. And I wasn't there, but I saw pictures of it on Twitter. It looked like they'd filled a. Uh, I think that church has a pretty big sanctuary, and it looked like it was pretty packed with folks. So uh, the the protest aspect of it really didn't materialize until this was law and started to really blow up on social media and blow up in the, the national media. Um, you know, I hate to say it, but it almost seems like no one was paying attention to all the stories we wrote about this before uh, the special <laughs> session actually feeling, occurred. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but no, and it's interesting, um, you know, because obviously, you know, protesting after it's passed, you know, it, it sends a message, but who knows how much change that will actually affect the the interesting part is probably the the business backlash like you mentioned um you know with you know the previous bill and with indiana's um you know rifra act of their own you know the the business backlash and you know the potential loss of money there um you know kind of influenced (laughs) you know the you know the repeal or the change of those laws yeah i mean republicans at their core really do not ever want to be seen as not pro-business i mean that's it's part of their identity as being the, the party of, of big, big, big business. But yeah. when you have this kind of backlash, it becomes harder. And, and we, to be fair, we have heard the governor's office say, 
we've gotten petitions and, and letters of support from a number of small businesses, uh, but there's been no release, I think, of the uh, list of the businesses. Associated Press, I think, had requested it yesterday and did not uh, I get hadn't the list. seen anything. Yeah, there, there were a small business owner to, and I think one of the one of the women spoke in in both. She was a business owner from Charlotte, I believe. Small business owner. She never said what her business was. But um, she spoke in both the House and Senate public hearings, I think, in, in strong support of it. So there were there were definitely businesses that supported it. Um, yeah, I guess the question is sort of which ones are, are these big corporations that employ thousands of people versus, you know, your small business owner who, who may be somewhat conservative politically and is, is concerned about, you know, having to make changes in a restaurant bathroom or opening themselves up to litigation and that sort of thing. Um, it seems to be most of the folks who are supporting it are these these more small business owners. Did but you? even on that same front, um, at the, uh, the rally beforehand uh, last week, uh, you know, asking for there not to be a special session, two of the people who spoke were small business owners. Um, a bar owner and a bookstore owner saying that they fully supported Charlotte and didn't want the legislature to be doing this. And um, I actually, I interviewed a uh, a Republican who was there and, you know, she said, look, I think that, you know, the General Assembly has much more important things on their plate (laughs) to be handling than this. And, you know, she was, uh, you know, kind of disappointed in her party, I suppose. Yeah, and it's it'll be interesting, too, I think, to see if we hear from some of the uh, the big business folks in the state who typically restore, support uh, Republican politicians. I was, we were talking to my colleague on the, the business desk here at the News Observer, David Rainey, today. He was working on a story yesterday about business reaction. He said he'd reached out to SAS, the uh, big employer in, in Cary that's owned by uh, Jim Goodnight, who has, uh, I think, donated to a number of Republican politicians over the years and, and has endorsed uh, several of them as well. Uh, he says... Uh, David says that SAS normally responds to any inquiry from him very quickly. Yesterday, he got no response from them at all. Um, and, he, and I got similar response or lack of response from the chamber. I, I had emailed them um, earlier. So, so State Chamber North of Commerce. State yeah. Chamber. Have, have you heard anything about I whether they I have not heard supported? anything from them. Um, I mean, they don't seem m- to have weighed in at all. Yeah, it might be one of those things where they know some businesses are for it and some are against it. So might as well uh, steer clear. Yeah, um, at least until they can take a formal vote. I don't know how many of these these big organizations have to have their members weigh in one way or the other before they can take a formal position. Um, some of them were very quick about it. I mean, League of Municipalities uh, very quickly came out against the bill as a, an overreach into to local authorities. Um, but that was... I think they pretty much had <laughs> had to do that. They didn't yeah. have a choice. But it was interesting how some of the big business groups, the the retail merchants, I never heard anything from them. Um, I don't know if you did or not. I did, yeah. Mean they didn't have a position, but the, I mean, the, them and the chamber are two of the biggest lobbying forces at the General Assembly. And, and it might just be that, you know, they, they knew the, the the writing was on the wall or, or what was going to happen and, and why risk, you know, um, ticking off some of the people who, who will have to pass bills that they support, you know, later on, um, you know, later on. Yeah. Um, it seemed pretty pretty obvious what was about to happen and maybe they just decided to punt on this yeah one. and i think that's probably why we saw the the democrats walk out because they really the, the best statement they could have made against this bill knowing that they were going to even if all their party held together on that they were not going to win this vote they were not going to come close to winning this vote so to to make the big statement of walking out um as much as that seemed to irritate uh, republicans like tom apodaca who i, I read somewhere uh, in one of the the western north carolina papers is now threatening to see if he can't take away the per diem for the democratic senators who who did not participate in the vote um and then i think also charge charlotte for the cost of the special session so we'll we'll see how that goes yeah um, uh, jim blaine the, the senator Bur- 
Berger's chief of staff came down to my office yesterday and was saying, when, where's your per diem story? Why, you know, why aren't you writing a per diem story about the, 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 the senators who, who didn't vote and didn't do, their, didn't do their duty, yet they're probably taking their $104 a day? I, I, I seem to remember a time when uh, Republican senators walked out of a meeting. It was a committee meeting, not a floor session. Um, I don't know if any of them didn't take their per diems for that day, and I don't know. They might have voted in session later on, but th- this wasn't the first walkout by, by folks ever. Yeah, it's uh, something that happens to the legislature. You know, passions get high. Uh, before we wrap up this segment and our, our lengthy discussion of, of the special session, I wanted to look ahead. Um, I think there's a lot of political will, particularly among Democrats, uh, to try to make some major change at the ballot box come November, in, in part for channeling some of the anger about this bill. Um, but what I think is interesting to, to consider is that uh, I think Demo- the NC Democratic Party has made it their goal this election season to, uh, one, elect Roy Cooper as the governor, um, and then get enough seats, I think, in the House that the Republican supermajority will be ended, which the result of that effectively will be that Roy Cooper, if he's the governor, can veto a piece of legislation, and then Tim Moore, whoever the House Speaker is, won't have enough votes necessarily to override, which... If, if he still has enough votes in a supermajority in the in the Senate and the House, they can override any veto from a Governor Roy Cooper, Roy Cooper, and nothing really changes. But if you if the governor is actually able to successfully veto some of the more objectionable to Democrats legislation, uh, then they'll be able to make a lot more difference in, in some serious political change in the state. The question I have about that is looking at the Democrats who voted yes during the special session. Uh, because if you pick up three or four seats uh, that are currently held by Republicans flip in the House, um, then uh, do, are you able to keep some of these rural Democrats in line? There were 11 Democrats who voted in favor of the bill. Most of them um, were from rural areas. A lot of them were African-American, so represented more, I think, socially conservative constituency, even though they are Democrats. And uh, I talked to one, Representative Larry Bell uh, from Clinton, North Carolina, uh, yesterday, and he said, you know, he didn't like a lot of aspects of the bill. He didn't think it should be interfering with local control, with local non-discrimination ordinances, but he really felt like the bathroom issue needed to be addressed and that his constituents wanted it to be addressed, and therefore he voted yes on that. Um, but unless there's some, uh, I guess, consistency among the, the Democrats in the House caucus, um, you may find that Tim Moore gets enough support, even if he doesn't have a supermajority, to, to override some of a Democratic governor's vetoes. Is that since you guys get as well? I, I think you're yeah. absolutely right. I think um, the, the House Republicans have done or ha- have been successful um, more often than not in getting some Democrats to vote for their legislation, even highly controversial legislation that a lot of Democrats are staunchly against. I think uh, with some of the incentives uh, legislation, uh, with the budgets uh, in, in recent years, there's always a handful of Democrats who vote who, who vote with Republicans. And I think if they continue if they can continue to get a, a few Democrats uh, on their side, it won't ma- it won't matter if the Democrats pick up a few seats in the House. They'll still be able to to override um, certain things. And there's always that kind of horse trading too. You know, if you help us override this, we'll we'll help you out uh, with something else down the line. And Democrats who who really have no power, you know, I, I would say that the, the smart ones are the ones who are willing to to cross um, party lines on certain things and not just always to, you know do the Democratic thing. Are probably more likely to get stuff for their districts that they need or want um, if they're willing to, you know. So Democrats aren't 
you know, you could say the Republicans aren't united in a lot of ways, but the Democrats aren't either. There's there's the really far left Democratic group, and then there's the the more conservative, the Main Street Democrats, the ones who will vote, you know, pro business all the time, and who will vote for budgets if they feel they're they're decent. Um, so, uh, you know, I, yeah, yeah. Barring a huge upset uh, by Democrats in the the fall, and, and maybe the Donald Trump effect could lead to that. I, you know, I don't think something like this uh, bill they passed in the special session is likely to be overturned because it really would take uh, Democrats uh, leading both chambers to to push a, a repeal of this sort of legislation. All right. Well, I think that uh, gives us a, a good view of this. Um, crazy week in North Carolina politics in the, the special session. Uh, we're going to take a quick break and be back with a, a quick edition of uh, Headliners of the Week. Stay with us. The odds of becoming a signed artist and having four number one albums, one in 100 million. The odds of going on to win seven Grammy Awards, one in 1.4 million. The odds of this performer having a child diagnosed with autism, one in 68. I'm Tony Braxton, and I encourage you to learn more at autismspeaks.org slash signs. Autism Speaks. It's time to listen. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. Welcome back to this week's edition of Domecast. I'm Colin Campbell with the News and Observer, and now it's time for... Who is your headliner of the week? Who is your headliner of the week? Who is your headliner of the week? Headliner of the week. Yes, it is indeed time for Headliners of the Week, our uh, most popular segment here on the podcast. And we've got a small group uh, head-to-head battle, uh, I guess, in a sense, on Headliners of the Week. Uh, Pat Gannon from The Insider and uh, Will Doran from The News and Observer are joining me again. Uh, So I guess to start off, uh, Pat, who is your Headliner of the Week? I will go with somebody unrelated to uh, House Bill 2 and and say the chairman of the state Republican Party, Hassan Harnett, who... Uh, was elected kind of by grassroots uh, conservatives across the state uh, to that post uh, last year, I think in the spring of 2015. Um, he re- recently, the a committee of the Republican Party uh, has uh, taken a vote of no confidence in his leadership of the party. Uh, they, they want him out um, uh, for a number of reasons, and there's still this kind of grassroots support for him um, but we're hearing now that the, the, the you know the the establishment Republicans, for lack of a better way to say it, or I may try to get him out even before the the state convention, which I think is May seventh or yeah, or is it? It's either May or June. Um, but anyways, it's it's not too far away. Yeah, sometime in the next couple months. Yeah, and as I think I understand it, so for folks who aren't familiar with the the Republican Party's uh, internal workings, there's two sort of leading committees. There's the it's a central committee that's it's hundreds of of GOP activists from all over the state, and they really only get together maybe once a year. And then there's the executive committee, which is the elected chair, vice chair, a couple of the the chairs from congressional districts, and then a lot of uh, statewide elected officials, people like uh, the Speaker of the House, the head of the Senate. 
so it, it, it sort of has, I guess, a more establishment leaning than in sort of grassroots activists. So you've got these two uh, opposing wings, um, and I guess the big dispute right now is over uh, convention fees, which is something Hassan Harnett campaigned to lower so that more people could go to the convention. I think the uh, the fee is at least 90 bucks to attend, and of course you have to travel to, I guess, Greensboro is where they're having it this year. Uh, so it t- can prove too costly for some people. He wants to you want uh, to do an early bird special of, of some sort to, to allow yeah. some people who can't afford 90 bucks to come. Yeah, and then, then folks like Dallas Woodhouse and others who on the, the uh, I guess, executive committee uh, voted down that proposal, um, basically saying, you know, he hadn't raised enough money for the party for them to do that, um, and, and they really need that extra revenue in order to, to be able to function, so they, they can't afford to, to lower the rate. But that seems to be the, the big flashpoint that's, uh, that's caused this whole thing. So it'll be really interesting to see how it works out. Uh, you know, a lot of it, I think, uh, Jim Moore at the Charlotte Observer had a good column showing how it, it mirrored this split at the Republican Party on the national level, the folks who back uh, people like Donald Trump and then the, the establishment who saw their candidates like Jeb Bush and Marco Rubio just go down in flames this cycle. Right. All right. Thanks, Pat. So Hassan Harnett as a, a possible headliner of the week. And we'll turn next to Will Doran. Who's your headliner? My nominee is Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest. Um, it is a role that isn't often in the headlines. A lot of the work is done kind of behind the scenes when you're lieutenant governor. Um, but when Pat McCrory declined to call a special session for HP2, getting back to that topic. Yeah, because his, his rationale, I guess, was that um, he was worried the legislature was going to put unrelated provisions in there, which they did, and he still signed it. But right, anyway. Right. Well, that, that's a different story. But yes, so um, when the governor declines, it has to be, the session has to be called by the leaders of both the House and the Senate. And the lieutenant governor is technically the leader of the Senate. He is the Senate president. Um, and so he, uh, he, you know, in the, in the middle of, you know, this election campaign form, he got the chance to get front and center and, you know, put his name out there. Yeah, a lot of people wondered, I guess, when they saw the the proclamation that went out, and I guess it was it was Monday or Tuesday, and it's, it's House Speaker Tim Moore and, and Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest sitting there signing it, and you wondered, well, where's Phil Berger, the, you know, the Senate leader? But, you know, exactly. Phil Berger is what, the Senate pro tem. Right, so. he's the president pro tem, so he gets to, he, he runs it day to day, but he yeah. is not actually technically the number yeah. one guy. In and the I Senate. guess Senate president used to actually be the person in charge of the Senate. And sometime in the past few decades, um, that power role shifted and President Pro Tem became uh, the person as the person being elected by their fellow uh, senators uh, who really holds the, the levers of power. Um, but yeah. still, the lieutenant governor and Senate president still presides over sessions, but really doesn't do that much necessarily. Um, but because this was a, a constitutional mechanism to trigger a special session that hadn't been used since 1981, uh, it, it's still uh, sort of laying the, the decision-making process at the House Speaker and the Senate president. Exactly. So we, we got a nice little crash course in uh, civics yeah. here, <laughs> in addition to some, uh, you know, some pretty well-read headlines. So. All right, so it's a a head-to-head contest for uh, Headliner of the Week between uh, the chairman of the Republican Party, possibly not the chairman for too much longer, Hassan Harnett, and uh, Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest, who uh, had his uh, moment in the spotlight this week. And uh, as interesting as the uh, infighting is over at the uh, Republican Party, obviously the House Bill 2 is the the story of the week, and I think I have to hand this one to to Dan Forrest, uh, uh, since he probably won't get to be Headliner of the Week that much, unless maybe just he has a good election victory, but beyond that, you know, he's he's not in the news that much, so we'll, we'll let him be headliner of the week this week, and uh, that's all the time we have for uh, this edition of Domecast. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. 
You've been listening to The Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the daily print edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.